Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. So we have now made our way slightly more than half the way through the SBS conferences. I'm going to have one big show with uh, Tyrant Scouting and maybe some others to talk about SCS Division II, NAIA Division Three, sort of all in one big shebangabang, probably a little before the season begins. But we are still dealing with the big, the big guys, the big conferences. For a couple more weeks, uh, Pac-12, uh, Sunbelt, SEC, Sunbelt, and uh, that is, I'm leaving something out, and the conference I'm forgetting. <laughs> uh, let's see, is there still a whack? <laughs> but yes, uh, we'll finish off uh, the big, big schools. Then we'll do a small school scouting show once I can get. Uh, Tyrant Scouting and a few others confirmed. But today it is the Pac-12. And I fell in love with Pac-12 football, despite the fact that I was an East Coast kid, in the early 70s for a couple of reasons. One is it was not as dull as what was going on in most of the football teams east of the Rockies. I mean, Stanford was seen as, you know, wild and crazy football in the 60s and 70s because you know, who threw the football 22, 23 times a game? Who's the lowers? You know, that's how uh, Jim Plunkett, that's all, all the other Stanford quarterbacks were able to become the Stanford quarterbacks. The sort of lineage we discuss really extends all the way back to Frankie Albert and John Brody went back to the early and mid-50s. But by the time I was following football in the early 70s, Stanford, Tulsa, uh, Rice had a, had a, a year or two where they really threw the football, but there were only a handful of teams that really threw the football um, at all the way you would think of a, quote-unquote, modern passing game. Uh, most of the teams, when I first started following the game, were wing team, or a few were uh, triple option. You know, good old-fashioned uh Wishbone, or a few were what they called eye bone, which was sort of a slightly more conventionally blocked power eye-esque version of triple option. But this is an era when, you know, pretty much every big-time school, with a few exceptions, were running teams. And I don't mean running teams as a balance. When people say somebody has a running team, they mean, you know, 48, 49, 50, 51, 52% you know, of the game is running. But when I started following the game, there are running teams that ran the ball 70 and 80% of the time, particularly the triple option teams, and even a lot of the power eye and wing T teams will be running the football 60-plus percent. So the quote-unquote modern passing offense 
certainly modern in the sense of being recent in terms of being adopted by a lot of schools. Now, there have been outliers throwing the football going back forever. You know, you can go back to, you know, TCU in the 30s. Now, obviously, it was a slightly different version of, of a passing game. One, because it was built entirely around, uh, you know, still a spread version of Wing T. And obviously, the passing game was still rudimentary by state standards. But the point is that by the 70s, there were a few teams. Purdue, of course, had been throwing the football for a while in the Big Ten, but there were a few teams, even in the power conferences, that had modern-looking passing games, which still in those days meant tight end, fullback, running back, an X, and a Y receiver. <laughs> you know, that's that was pro set. I mean, that was the literal definition of pro set. That's, and some people still confuse pro set with pro style and call a team that's passing attack is resembles not what the NFL is doing one iota, but they have a fullback. So they automatically say, hey, they're a pro style. You know, so I would be careful about terminology. But the Pac-12 is still an interesting conference for several reasons. One is it is, you know, with the exception of, you know, Hawaii, as far west as we go in terms of football outpost. And because of that, there has been a slightly more experimental feel sometimes. My experience is on the word. But slightly less buttoned up and close to the vest. Even, you know, like I said, going back to the 50s in, in some cases. And the other thing, of course, is California kids. I mean, all of the Pac-12 schools, whether in California or not, need to recruit California. California is a very rich state in terms of resources. And amongst those resources are football players, you know, as well as most of our fruit and vegetables. But when you look at the Pac-12, and I remember when it was literally the you know, much like the Big Ten used to be Ohio State and Michigan for a while, and, you know, the old uh, Big Eight conference would be, you know, Nebraska and Oklahoma, and you could sort of count on certain teams and certain conferences facing each other virtually every year. The UCLA-USC game was, of course, a big rivalry game for the schools, but also was almost always decided who was going to go to the Rose Bowl for a while there. There was a run where, you know, Washington stuck its nose in, but before Washington sort of emerged as a legitimate contender, you know, there were a few Oregon State intrusions. I mean, Oregon wasn't much of a factor until recently. recently. I mean, Mike Bellotti really sort of put Oregon on the map. Washington State has had some good years, obviously. You know, Coach Price, when he installed that one-back attack and had Drew Bledsoe and, and Ryan Leaf, but that was, once again, a fairly short run. The two programs you could really count on, almost from the inception of the conference, you know, from its earliest form to reasonably recently, it was very often those two teams. And then with Oregon emerging with some other schools starting to siphon off some of the California talent. You know, Cal had a couple of good years and now is trying to get back on the map. We'll see what will happen with, you know, Oregon State. They're getting sort of 
to a pivotal point in their program's recent history. We'll see if Oregon can continue to be, you know, the machine that was built, partially built under Bilotti and then sort of completed under uh, Chip Kelly's watch. The Arizona schools, who at one point were the late arrivals to the conference, now there's lots of newer schools, but Arizona and Arizona State have each had runs of being competitors. You know, Frank Cush out in the desert, you know, the Desert Swarm defense, and, you know, a few other times in their history. But generally, you don't see people picking Arizona or Arizona State to win the conference. It, when they do win, it's considered an upset. And that's been true almost throughout their entire time in the conference as well. And then Stanford, always competitive, but recently, you know, under coaches Harbour and Shaw, their administration, their regimes, what they've done there is truly special. One, because of sustained excellence, you know, much like what Coach Cutcliffe is rather quietly doing at Duke with Duke being a, you know, nine or ten win school a few years in a row, which just didn't used to happen. I mean, even Spurrier really only had one really, really great year. So when Stanford, with its, you know, being a private school, high academic standards, all the, all the sort of difficulties that schools talk about when they're somewhat smaller than their state-funded brethren, have higher academic standards, your Northwesterns, your Vanderbilts, To some extent, even, like I said, you know, what Duke has managed to accomplish, very impressive. But Stanford, in terms of sustained excellence, is really sort of the king of the brain schools, for lack of a better way of putting it. You know, they, they, if there was an SAT bowl, and I always thought it would be cool if they did, where Northwestern, though Northwestern did beat Stanford recently, but, but if Northwestern, Stanford, Vanderbilt and um, who am I forgetting? Uh, Northwestern, Stanford, Vanderbilt. Oh, and Duke. Uh, we're all required to play each other each year. It would be cool. But hasn't happened yet. Some of those schools play each other, not all of them. Almost like a Commander's Cup trophy kind of thing where they'd hand out like a, you know, I would say a slide rule, but that's a dated reference. Uh, I don't know, something like a uh, giant brass pocket projector. I don't know. I'm, I'm being being silly, I guess. But I still think it would be cool for those schools to play each other. It would be uh, a revenue source for some of the schools that don't do as well, you know, in terms of money as well as Stanford does. And for some of the other schools, um, it, you know, exposure, things like that. And then, obviously, it's a, to win, most likely, at least early on for Stanford, though obviously Northwestern beats them. So, the conference, the Pac-12. A couple of things that you you can't help but notice about the conference, and I'll sort of go through them in in some sort of order, I guess. It is still a conference that tends to recruit nationally despite the amount of talent that can be found in the West Coast, particularly California, obviously. But despite that, Washington, 
Washington State. Washington State, you know, obviously has to recruit nationally, but Cal, another high academic uh, standard school. Stanford is always.
less bulk, uh, you end up with a player who's less likely to, you know, fewer 320-pounders. I mean, there's certain things that just sort of happen almost automatically when you're talking about a, a, a Rich Rodriguez team. And, yes, you know, just a, you don't see a bunch of giant guys. Uh, you know, Anu Solomon, now a redshirt junior, is a pretty well-developed guy. I mean, he's been there a while, and the loss of the spring game itself uh, due to spring innovation innovation and just caution, an abundance of caution, I think would be the as much as anything else. I mean, you can find another place. There's high school, there's places you can play your spring game if you really wanted to have a spring game. So it's clear to me... uh, I'm sorry, it's Arizona State that's flat out canceled because of the stadium renovations for for the um but yeah, for the spring game itself, uh like I said, changes were made with an eye towards um Maintaining health, right? We we sort of talked about that. Make sure that you you have more healthy players to actually go out and play football. Uh, and like I said, uh, developing individual skills. There's more of an emphasis on that as well. So Brandon Dawkins and Andrew Solomon are involved in a quarterback competition. What do you do? I would assume that Andrew Solomon will be victorious, but it'll be interesting. Brandon Dawkins, uh, with the sophomore, brings you a little more pop than athlete. Uh, Dawkins certainly has impressed when he's had his opportunity. In the area of big, Dawkins was met by uh, yards passing and two touchdowns with 78 yards. So, uh, three settlements went much to two, two passing and 420, no, sorry, uh, yeah, 
situation or he flat out loses his job. So that'll be interesting to see just how that does play out. A few other things to choose then. This is the team that teams is going to support That's the nature of their offense. You can't just run routes. And you also need to be a blocker because a lot of their runs, either by design or by, you know, decision-making of a, the ball carrier, will find their way, you know, either sooner or later to the boundary. And because they don't have to pull back on the field, basically ever, I don't know if they have one designated for another position on their roster. My guess is they're very few players, no way. And if you play a full it's probably only a one situation. It's probably someone, you know, it's probably basically a linebacker, a reserve guard, you know, some other position that sort of be talked into that situation so that they can have somebody who wants to run. Just sort of dealing with uh, some of the things they lost. Caleb Jones, who I really Decided for whatever reason to go to the basketball would have much better situation for the basketball. David Richardson got basketball gone, so uh, Samaji Grant is probably going to be the man, certainly the receiver. There's not a lot else returning at the receiver position. And he only had 301 yards and two touchdowns last season. Uh, Jared Randall is, of course, out of the picture as I mentioned. Amy Solomon is being pushed. So we can see you know, how they all look, how they all play in terms of the passing. I think their defense is leading in third down defense where you can play, and their passing will basically tell the tale of where this team is headed or not headed. I mean, they need you know, those things to play out for them, for them to be able to consistently win. This is not the kind of team that, despite the fact that they do want to run football, but they can't just pound it. You know, they're not that kind of team, and they're not even built. And huge, powerful blockers. They win in the running game through, you know, it's not a war of positioning. You know, it's not a war meaning that they get you moving a certain way use your own motion, momentum, and things like that against you. Uh, one of the leaders on defense, Paul Maglier Jr., is a uh, spur, whatever term you want to, um, how do you describe him? He's about 216, maybe. Uh, he is a player who had 72 total tackles, 54 solo tackles last year. You know, so his development will certainly help. And ideally, he's he's going to play in the low 220s. His weight's likely to fluctuate a little bit just because of the demands of playing a position where you're, you know, everyone's looking for a DL Buchanan, right? Hey, you know, somebody can rush the pass, stuff the run, cover running backs, tight ends, and slot receivers, and, you know, all that good stuff. He came 
has a safety from Arizona Western, and like I said, it's put on 10, 11 pounds, and now he's, you know, a safety slash linebacker hybrid spur, you know, whatever term they use, wildcat backer, whatever term they like to throw around, he's he's that thing. Uh, the old monster man, as they used to call it back in the day. So, what can we expect? What's coming for them? What's coming down the road? Well, it would be easy to predict they stay where they are. The open with BYU, which is going to be a tough game. At least they are coming to Phoenix Stadium, so it's essentially a home game. Then Grambling comes into town. That should be a win. Uh, Hawaii, that's so, sorry, Hawaii, but that's definitely a win. And things get interesting with Washington. They play them on the 24th. Saturday, they take on UCLA. So uh, the BYU game is extremely important. First of all, it's a night game, TV game in Glendale. If they can win that game, it really sets them up for a great season. Should they lose that game, which I'm suspecting they might, it sets them up for an average season. Uh, then they go to UCLA in another you know, game that's super important. If they can win against BYU and UCLA and are then undefeated uh, going to Utah, they're in the mix at that point You know, for a team that might end up in the conference championship, or they could be a team that has two or three losses. I can see where they could use the Washington, but I think that's a game they should win. Though it's a tough one. BYU, I think that's a loss. Utah is a pick'em game to me, but I guess you know, gun to my head, I might pick Arizona. That's a tough one. USC, I think, is a loss. Stanford, I think, is a loss. Washington State, I think, is a win. Colorado should be a win. They go to Oregon State, but I think they should be a win. Arizona State game, it's always tough to pick. Gun to my head, I probably would pick them. And then, of course, the championship game, should they reach it. But I see I see an eight-win team. So I think, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if they ended up coming sh- up short, but, but as of now, I see an eight-win team. And they could go as low as six or as high as ten with just a few things happening in terms of people getting hurt or, you know, foolishness. I mean, so much can happen, right? And uh, let's move on to Arizona State, who didn't have a spring game, as was mentioned earlier. Uh, They still had, you know, spring football activities. You know, so that's still, you know, the same ritual of, trying to figure out who your best players are and, you know, who should start and who should not and all those things. I mean, that's all still in play, as always. They just, because of the renovations, just don't have a spring game per se. But, yeah, there's still the, you know, the usual position battles and all that other good stuff that you always have in every other situation. So they also lost some talented players, some to the draft, some to injury last year.
And they have another interesting coaching situation. Not that I think anybody's in danger of losing their job. I mean, I think Scott Graham probably reasonably safe, but he's another guy that I think people also suspect have his ears open to, you know, what happens at Texas, what happens lots of places, what happens in Baylor long-term. I mean, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see how he would weigh where he is now versus Baylor at the Baylor job long-term. You know, the permanent job should become open there. He's had a reputation of being a guy who's, you know, they're willing to listen with people willing to talk. You know, so that's that's a, a question always of with him is, you know, he seems like he may have unpacked, you know, put his bags down and maybe saying stay a while, but you just want to be careful anytime you're talking about him. And, of course, they have good players returning. And they're another team that, uh, you know, once again recruits Texas, partially because of, of the coach and his connections to the state, partially because of lack of football players in Texas. Uh, they recruit the state of California, once again, for the same reasons just mentioned, not so much because of any personal connections coaches have there, but though some of their coaching staff do. But once again, it's because there's so many good football players there. You, you have to. I mean, everybody to some extent recruits California, and obviously all the Pac-12 schools, you know, would have to if you want to ever win any football games, which I think most teams do. So despite not having a spring game, they still had spring practices, and there were still players who, who showed that they might be, you know, about to, to make their presence felt in a big way. And some of them are players, like I said, who are, are you know, stepping in, stepping up, for players that are no longer there. And uh, they open with, I mean, once again, no offense to the mighty lumberjacks of Northern Arizona, but that they're they're opening with what should be and certainly was expected to be sort of almost automatic victory, but, you know, we've learned to be careful about these automatic victories against FCS schools. Now, amongst the things that are you know, being decided for this team and many, many others. In addition to starters, you know, which you obviously need, depth is just about as important. If you, if you don't have, I mean, we, we joke about if you, you know, a quarterback at least, if you have two, it means you don't have one, and that's to some extent true, but at almost any other position you think of, you need several. Uh, Bryce Perkins, Manny Wilkins, Brady White are all guys that are expected to people the depth chart, be involved in the depth chart uh, situation in Arizona State. So one of the things that they'll be figuring out, in addition to, you know, the quote-unquote quarterback com- uh competition or battle or whatever, they, they have several other positions. Basically, all of the skill positions, there may be some some shuffling, I guess, for lack of putting it, in terms of, you know, who who does what, who's the, uh, who's going to be the man at a few different positions is being, being decided. 
uh, in addition to that, which is obviously important. Some of the younger players, some of the guys who weren't, maybe not too much of the speculation, they may have been freshmen or sophomores. Uh, and then, of course, obviously a new crop of incoming recruits. Some of those guys are going to see the field either more or they're going to see the field, if not as starters, then, like I said, guys are expected to add depth. Uh, many of them will see the field early. Uh, some of these guys will be, if not starters, will be expected to, to help out very early on. Uh, at quarterback, Manny Wilkins, a sophomore, a guy who has some movement skills. Uh, Richard Freshman, Brady White, and Richard Freshman, Bryce Perkins, like I said, are all, all involved. In, in trying to figure out who's going to end up winning the job long term. And I don't think he's just being coy. When, when Coach Graham says he doesn't know who his quarterback is, I think he means it. I think he probably won't know until well into August. Here's an interesting fact. I don't know if it's a fun fact or not, but they have not yet at this point started a quarterback who actually signed under Coach Graham. Taylor Kelly and Mike Berkovici were guys that started the program under Erickson, uh, Michael Eubank, who ended up finishing his career at Sanford, was another guy that came in under Coach Erickson. Every single one of the quarterbacks has played at points with the first team, and all of them at various points have shown signs of being inexperienced. Wilkins showed the strongest arm. White showed the best touch, anticipation, and accuracy, and Perkins showed the best athletic ability but there's simply no one who's shown that they, you know, have flat out ready to take the job, much like back in 2012 when they had a four-way, Marisa is correctly, uh, quarterback competition. You know, Kelly and Sampson, as Ragaraki or whatever his name was, and uh, Sazaki, I think it was. And uh, I think Michael Eubank may have been a freshman that year, if Marisa is correctly, and Berkovici, also was on the team. He may have redshirted, but he had a bunch of quarterbacks at that point. The offensive line, and this is, you know, obviously, once again, some of a broken record moment, but they will need to be better, uh, particularly because this team is so young at other positions on offense. So, Evan Goodman, uh, the left tackle, a senior, is the only returning starter. There are some guys who at least have some competition. Uh, Stephon McCray, the guard, and left guard Sam Jones at least have some playing experience. And then it's uh, sort of figure it out with the others. Uh, Tyler McClure, a walk-on, uh, played a lot of first-team center this year, so he hopefully will take a scholarship maybe if that continues. Also, junior college transfer A.J. McCollum is another possibility. Quinn Bailey played a lot at right tackle in the spring. And retro freshman Zach Robertson played both guard and tackle, probably will be backing up both those positions this year. Whoever trots out there, they need improvement. And if this team is going to be less prone, once again, a lot of talk about trying to avoid giving up big plays. Not every team in the conference, but it seemed that more than half the teams in the conference struggled with giving up explosive plays. Arizona State was no different. But you can look at for uh, Dishavon Hayes, a former running back who's been playing a fair amount of corner. Uh, Tim White played some corner. 
so he may be playing a little little Roy Green action, playing a, a little bit of both sides of the ball, though he's primarily a wide receiver. Armand Perry at safety has been limited, but he's expected to contribute and compete. Junior college transfers, Maurice Chandler and Jamarcus Rhodes are guys that this time during spring were expected to make make an impact. Uh, spur, former Spur linebacker, Laiu uh, Mokiola is now playing free safety. I think he's probably a strong safety in terms of what he might do at the next level, but he's playing free safety for Arizona State this year. And as since they need not just to avoid giving up big plays, they need to actually make some big plays. <laughs> Their secondary needs to make plays and not just prevent plays. Uh, so if they can do that, if they can be, you know, a legitimate uh, source of plays on offense, not on offense, on defense, where they, that, instead of just hoping to avoid giving up big plays, they can actually start to get turnovers, they can start to uh, bat down balls, things like that. You know, there's a real opportunity for them to to make a run, at least at part of the conference championship. But they'll need some things to break right. And once again, they'll need to stay healthy, which is, you know, something you hear me say over and over again. But they're another team that has, you know, a good first layer of talent, but a pretty decent drop-off between that first and second layer of talent on their roster. And with so much uncertainty at quarterback, I mean, like I said, I think it's legitimate when he says he won't know who his starter is until right before the first game of the season. That can't help but be a concern. I mean, there's no way to put it. You've got to be a little worried about that. And establishing an identity on both sides of the ball, which is a big challenge for them. You know, they're not, you know, DJ Foster's not walking through that door anymore. And he was, you know, their best, maybe their best single player on the entire team, but certainly their best player on offense. And they moved him around a little, maybe a little too much between running back and wide receiver, probably to his detriment to some extent. Uh, Coach Graham obviously is unafraid of experimenting with personnel, moving players around, all kinds of things like that. And maybe to some extent they'll get lucky and they'll have a player, you know, really emerge. Uh, Speaking of players you can expect to emerge, they have two really good running backs, Demario Richard and and Kaelin Balazs, and I, I, I don't know which one of them is going to end up being the guy that gets most of the touches, but both are talented. Uh, both have the ability to make a lot of plays. One of them is sort of more of a fluid slasher, and then you have more of a power guy in the other back, but both of them are capable of doing a little bit of everything. So we to see how that plays out. But if they can establish a really strong running game, one that will help, like I said, all that you know, youth they have at the quarterback position where they just frankly don't have a good sense and understandably so, you know, what they might get out of the quarterback position if they end up having a um, 
you know, if they end up having a um, quarterback, you know, which is, I mean, that, I'm not saying it can't work, but it, it rarely works. It's sort of a scary proposition, but hopefully they won't be shuffling quarterbacks in and out. Hopefully they'll figure out one of them, and that guy will just go, go do, do his thing. Uh, Richard, to me, is one of the more underrated running backs in the country. And, you know, like I said, it's it's going to be fluid. Uh, no matter who ends up winning the quarterback job, it's going to be somewhat fluid because I think they're going to be careful with what they ask that player, how much they ask of that player, especially early on in his, in his career. Moving, sort of moving through, moving on. You know, assuming they do at some point pick a quarterback, and if that guy has a even a decent season, you know, I mean, it doesn't have to be an amazing season. And I doubt any of them will have an amazing season. Of course, I've been wrong in the past. Sometimes a guy just jumps out and you know, boom. But uh, Bo Wallace, uh, Kalen Thomas, Chance Cox, Emmanuel Darius. the aforementioned Leo Mokiola, Christian Sam, Edmund Botang, Tyler uh, Tyler Wiley, Brandon Williams, Armand Perry, Cody Cole, Grant Martinez, uh, Marshall Nathy, and Maurice Chandler all missed some time in the spring. Uh, some of them with minor injuries, some of them with injuries that were more than minor. So that's an issue for them. Like I said, they have a fair amount of drop-off between first and second string. Uh, the the three-way battle, obviously, between Wilkins, Brady White, and Perkins is still being figured out. So, you know, like I said, that uh, <laughs> remains to be seen what happens with that. So the current depth threat at wide receiver is Jalen Harvey and Ellis Jefferson, Tim White and Frederick Gamage, tight end Raymond Epps and Tommy Hudson. At left tackle, they have Evan Goodman, first string, Zach Robertson, second string, left guard Sam Jones, Stephen Miller. At center, Tyler McClure and Cade Cody. Right guard, Stephen McCray and Connor Humphreys. Right tackle, Quinn Bailey, Mason Walter. Running backs are Demario Richard or Kalen Balaj and Nick Ralston. And quarterback is, like you said, either Manny Wilkins or Brady White or Bryce Perkins. And the other wide receiver, Cameron Smith and Ryan Jenkins. That's Sean Smallwood, a junior defensive tackle. There's another player I'm expecting to improve and perhaps uh, to improve dramatically over uh, what he was and what he did last year. Uh, As was mentioned, Tim White, you know, scouts will make notice of the fact that he's lined up at uh, corner and not looked bad doing so, quite frankly. I mean, what's not to like about a guy who can possibly play more than one position? We as scouts are always intrigued by versatility, and you 
you know, assuming it doesn't, like I said, really slow the player's overall growth, it can be a good thing. Uh, it can, we talked about the DJ Foster situation, or it could be a situation where a guy never fully becomes comfortable doing this new thing and then loses some of what he had doing the thing he did before. I frankly think DJ Foster is and was a third down back, and I think the day is coming where somebody in the NFL, whether it's a team that has him now or a team in the future, comes to that same realization, moves him back to third down back, and I think once he gets back home, for lack of a better playing it, I think he ends up flourishing. I'll be, if not shocked, then at least somewhat surprised if he doesn't find his way back to, to his home position at some point in the future, whether that be immediate future or further down the line. So figuring out sort of preview projections in terms of how the season is likely to play out for them, uh, let's take a quick look. As I mentioned, Northern Arizona, uh, almost certainly a win. Then Texas Tech in a very big game, uh, which could go either way, quite frankly. Gun to my head, I'm probably picking Texas Tech. Then uh, they should pick up a win versus the UTSA Roadrunners. I mean, obviously a loss would be devastating, but I don't think that's coming down the road. I think UTSA is going to be a very good program, uh, partially because they're in Texas, partially because well-supported, and you know, just partially because I think they have the right kind of ideas in place for how to build a program from, you know, essentially nothing to become something. You know, we watched South Florida have a pretty good success in terms of figuring out how to do that. And I won't be surprised one teeny tiny little bit if in three or four years that's a team that's going to bowls consistently. You know, if by 2020, you know, they're a team that's winning eight or nine games. But I don't think they're winning this game this week, and I think they're a few years away from being the kind of team that's going to go on the road and, you know, beat a Pac-12 team. But with that being said, I like I said, I've been wrong before. I will probably be wrong once more. But I don't think I'm wrong about this particular game. So that brings us now uh, to going a little further into their season and as things, you know, I guess, heat up, become more interesting, however you would like to phrase it, uh, we'll take a look at you know, who they face, when, where, and what we can probably expect in terms of outcomes. So moving on a little deeper into the season, uh, we get finally into the meat of the Pac-12 schedule. So after, um, you know, sort of fattening up probably a little bit on, on two early victories, things get interesting uh, when they get to uh, Cal and, of course, Cal comes to them, which should help a little bit, so they don't have to go to uh, go to Berkeley. And then the next game is USC, and that's an enormous game for both teams. Uh, USC has a chance to be, you know, maybe a one-loss team. I mean, I don't think they'll be undefeated, but I could be wrong, but they need to remain a one-loss team if they have, have a serious thought about contending. And then, by the same token, if they're undefeated, if U.S. is undefeated coming into that USC game, that sets them up for 
truly great things going forward. If they can win that game, I mean, if they're undefeated at that point, now they've only got one or two more games, they probably, you know, would be in much jeopardy of losing. So after the USC game, which I don't think they'll win, but if they do, it would be a big, big thing. Then, of course, UCLA comes to them, you know, so after traveling to USC, you know, instead of staying in town, which they could have done if they were playing the next game in, in, in L.A., but no, um, probably wouldn't be fair to them. So then they fly back home, and the Trojans come to them. I mean, uh, sorry, the Bruins come to them. So if they can, you know, escape from Los Angeles one time actually physically and the other time just football-wise with two wins, you know, we're looking at a team that probably will be playing for at least part of the championship. Colorado should be a win. Washington State, probably a win. And then, of course, Oregon. That's their, you know, one of the last big tests for them. But, I mean, we all assume Oregon's good, but, you know, are we assuming Oregon's good just because we're assuming Oregon's good? They recruit a lot of really good players. They've won a lot of games. But how do we know if they're good? And a move I think is imminently fair. They get a bit of a break. Go back to work against Utah on the 10th of November. They've been coming to Sundell Stadium. Not to pick them down to me. Guns in my head, I would say Utah. And they go to Washington, but I think they can still win that game. And then they go to Arizona. Another one of the you know, too close to call. So let's just say this could be a seven or eight win team. They could be a six and I guess worst case scenario, a five win team, but I think they'll win you know at least six games and then could they be a 9 or 10 win team? Maybe. I would be shocked if they got to 10. I wouldn't be shocked if they made it to 9. It'll be interesting to see how... I think they're one of the pivotal teams. Like I think how good they are will impact a lot of other teams. Because if they're bad... It helps USC and UCLA to get, you know, wins. Helps Arizona State to, you know, get the territorial territorial cup. But it also sort of brings down the overall prestige and an opinion that the country as a whole has about Pac-12. When both Arizona and Arizona State are good, the entire prestige and opinion that football America has for the conference is raised. But yes, my call is probably for a you know, eight-win season, seven, eight-win season, somewhere in that range. Like I said, with an outside chance for nine, an extremely outside chance for 10, and, you know, 
conceivably, they could really, you know, crash and burn and up with five wins, but I think six is the least I would reasonably expect. So, yeah, I'm probably going to go with seven. So if 7.5 were allowed to, you know, make it like a biggest over-under call. And that brings me to, oh, Arizona's done. So I'm going to save California until tomorrow. So I could do the state of Oregon, so that's tomorrow. So I guess I'll do the state of Washington and Utah. Utah first, I guess. So. Utah is another one of the puzzlement schools. Um, conceivably, they're another one of those schools that, you know, could rise up and threaten to win the whole shooting match. But they're another team that doesn't need much to go wrong in terms of how their team is constructed to be in trouble. They're another team that's not super, super deep at certain positions. And there's a lot of figuring it out for them on offense as well. Not a lot of returning, you know, intact offensive situations in the conference. UCLA obviously brings back a dynamic young quarterback, loses Paul Perkins, so they've got some talented running back. And they lose Duarte and some other receivers. USC, new quarterback. Arizona may have a new quarterback. Arizona State will definitely have a new quarterback, at least one new quarterback. They may be one of those schools that ends up with several new quarterbacks, which is rarely a good thing. Washington State has stability. You know, assuming knock on whatever's available. That uh, Falk stays healthy at quarterback. Washington brings back a talented young quarterback. So, yeah, I mean, there's a few schools that are at least settled in to some extent, but a lot of uncertainty as well. So, the red and white spring game certainly has meaning. Obviously, more for the players than everyone else. I mean, you you can glean certain things from a spring game, but it you know, like I said, I always talk about spring game all stars. I mean, some of them go on to become you know all star all stars, but some of them go on to become third stringers. As Utah figures out just what they're going to be, particularly on the offensive side of the ball, Devontae Booker clearly is not coming through that door, but they will run the football. Look for that to be still the same. 
They will be a team that is committed to running the football, running it today, running it tomorrow, running it, period. This is a team that, surprisingly to me, I'll put it that way, was only one game away to make it to who's playing for a Pac-12 championship. And kudos to the players and the staff who showed really great mental and physical toughness to make that possible. But frankly, I think unless they are a better passing game, that passing team they've been recently, they won't make it back to that win total. Aaron Roderick, one of their, part of their sort of co-offensive coordinator situation, has been working really hard to help develop their quarterback. Uh, Brandon Cox and Tyler Huntley, Cox a junior, and Huntley a freshman, are clearly in the fight. My assumption, and I shouldn't assume, but I will anyway, is that it's Brandon Cox's job to lose. They really like Huntley, and he has a legitimate chance of winning it. But I just think if, especially if Hunt holds serve, I think it's his job. And it would take injury or regression or a huge improvement, one or the other, by, by Huntley for him to, you know, win the job outright. However, I wouldn't be shocked if, once again, like some of the other team uh, in the conference I discussed earlier, I wouldn't be shocked if they tried to build situations where they got them both in some games, particularly games that are that have gotten hand or they're getting blown out one or the other. The receiving group is not filled with big names or even medium-sized names, but keep an eye out for Tyrone Smith and Caleb Rep. And uh, Kyle Falks has had a very good spring lining up in the slot position. And, of course, uh, you know, the the biggest named returner is their returner, Britton Covey. Very small, but super quick. So, if Utah is better on offense, I don't know if it's wise to assume that they will be, because they're starting with a new quarterback, but if we we just make that assumption, this could be a double-digit win team again. The linebacker position lost Gianni Paul, Jared Norris, and Jason Winningham. All three of those guys are not coming back. They will need somebody amongst their... They'll need somebody to emerge. And who that somebody is remains to be seen. Whoever that person is, 
Uh, they're not going to ask that person to win games a lot, maybe one or two. Ask them to manage, you know, five to seven games and then just not lose, you know, one or two games. Coach Whittingham has been really dedicated this season. Well, sorry, this spring, preseason, to getting away from having players sort of assume that they're going to be, you know, number one or number two or whatever on the depth chart simply because of seniority. He's played some guys who hadn't played much in the past because they really, you know, showed up in practice. Now, is that just a wake-up call, or is he serious? Is he actually playing to shake it up? We shall see. Some coaches are are guys who play mind games, and some coaches will play whoever has the better practice. It's easy to say it, but when all of a sudden you're going to roll a fourth stringer out there who's had great practices over like a preseason all-conference guy, that takes, you know, courage of your convictions to actually do it, not to say it. So, projection-wise, what can they get done? A lot of people are indeed picking them in the South. I think they will finish second in the South. And I think the South will be crowded, packed, tight, whatever term you want to use. And as I mentioned, Tyler Huntley might win the job. He's probably the more talented of the two players, but very, very young. But should he get caught up, show that he has the capability of running the offense at a high level, understands you know, proper risk assessment, which I think is sort of an underrated quote, quote uh, trait amongst young quarterbacks, and heck, even old quarterbacks, an underrated trait, risk assessment. Is this worth doing? What's the best or worst case scenario? Okay, let's see. So, for Utah, their season, as it plays out, I mentioned, obviously, their showdown on the 10th against the Sun Devils. They open with Southern Utah's Thunderbirds, which is Southern Utah's Super Bowl. So, they're a good program. So, be careful. Watch yourself. (laughs) 
then thank God they play BYU again. Thank you. I won't go back into my rant about this, but it's too early in the season, but I'll take it. This really should be a last of the season game, but I'm just going to take the Holy War being back and enjoy it. That's a game that, frankly, could go either way, but I guess I'll give the slightest of edge into Utah. Then San Jose State win in an upset. I'm going to pick USC to beat Utah, but I probably shouldn't. <laughs> I'll probably regret this later. And I reserve the right to change my mind. I see them beating Cal. So at that point, it would be four and one, entering the or you know coming out of the first game of October. And then they go into one heck of a a row of, of tests, both on the road and at home. So if they survive USC coming to the Rice Eccles, then they must go to California. Arizona comes to them. They go to Oregon State. They go to UCLA. Then Washington comes to them. They finally get a break. I could see them still being a one-loss team at that point. Arizona, I think that's a win. Oregon, possibly a loss. Colorado, definitely a win. So 10-2 and two is certainly achievable. 9-3, and three, I think it's probably the least I would expect. Eight and four is a possibility, but I'd be shocked. And could they run the table? Once again, not an impossibility. Unlikely, I would say, but not at all an impossibility. They have the talent. At certain positions, at least, they need to figure out. Need to figure out. Put down. They need to figure out what they're going to do at some other position. Quarterback being obviously the most obvious of those. And I'll finish today's show with the state of Washington. I'll knock out Washington and Washington State, and we'll save those for tomorrow. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, two of my favorite coaches in all of college football coach in the state of Washington. 
I am an enormous fan of both Coach Peterson, who I really wanted to see USC somehow land, and I don't know how you could not be it. I mean, look, if you like football, particularly you know, the passing game, then you're probably a fan of Mike Leach. And the Dread Pirate Leach is one of the great characters in college football and a sport that doesn't have as many great characters as it used to have, quite frankly. Now, unlike so many of the schools we previously discussed, there's no real quarterback question, controversy, competition on the Palouse. Washington State faces many challenges, but figuring out who the quarterback is is not one of them. Luke Falk may end up setting a couple of NCAA records this year. I mean, he's capable of taking some guys out of the out of the record book. He could have a you know forty five hundred plus fifty touchdown plus four interception type of year. I mean, that's not at all impossible for him. Quite the opposite. It's a hundred percent possible he could do something. Like that. The issue is the rest of his team. Uh, Joe Dahl's not coming to the door anymore. He's lost some key players. Broken record time again. Their defense needs to be better. It's been a couple of years since Deion Buchanan's come to that door. You know, they need to find more playmakers. Well, on both sides of the ball, quite frankly. But in breaking the Washington State team down, uh, you know, to the surprise of no one, uh uh-huh. They they are not going to really, you know, run the football. I mean that people make jokes about, you know, trick plays or whatever. I mean running the football is something they do, you know, I guess to keep from wearing out the quarterback's arm. You know, or whatever. Uh it's just not ever going to be a big part of their offense. Not this year. I mean certainly not as long as Coach Leach it's there, and he's got some legitimate metrical reasons as to, you know, what the likely outcomes are. And, you know, despite the old jokes about when you throw the ball, three things, three things can happen, two of them are bad, the world has, you know, completely flipped on its head since that statement was made. And Washington State, as much or more than any other team in the country, throws to set up the run. You know, I mean, I mean, not the or how are we gonna put it, 
throws it up the pass, really, I guess is what they do. <laughs> but occasionally they'll slip a run in. Uh, you can watch out for guys like River Craycraft and Kyle Sweet, who are uh, basically older and younger versions of each other, for lack of a better way of describing it. Let's see, a few other things worthy of mention. Despite the fact that this is a team that isn't ever seen as loaded, partially because it's not easy to get guys to go up off the blues. Uh, they get, a, you know, some junior college guys. I mean, they get guys in various, various ways in various places. But when you think about you know, the various natural impediments and the various challenges. This is a team that actually does a very good job of of stacking up talent and maybe as importantly, maybe more importantly, developing talent, especially when you're the kind of team that Washington State is. Once again, a mix of two and three stars with the occasional four star. I don't know if they've had a five star in the history of the program. If they have, it hasn't been recently. Which doesn't, you know, everything anyway, but as currently constituted, uh, for obvious reasons, you can look for a lot of balls to fill the air. They also signed Anthony Gordon, another really talented passer, up to their signing class. So obviously, the couple years before CM played football up there, but this is a team. Super committed, super committed to the past, and they also, um, if you, they, they Joe Salabay, their uh, D line coach is super fun to watch. And just those people that like to watch coaches coach, and I, I know that's not everybody, but if you want to see, you know, I mean, the guy looks like, probably looks like he could play, looks like he would start, in fact, on this particular team. And the Boise State game, which is going to be super, super, super big time, uh, will be on ESPN2. That will be one of those really, 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 really important games for them. In part because this is a program that doesn't normally or naturally just get attention. This team has to do things to attract attention. You know, Alabama doesn't have to do something special to attract attention. Oh, look. Alabama's have, they don't have nothing. People are reporting on it. But, you know, they, obviously they report on anything that does happen. They report on things that might happen. I mean, that's a program that, I mean, if anything, they, they get you know, more coverage than they need, more coverage than they want, probably tired of it. But Washington State is hungry for coverage. They'd love to have somebody who can be molded into a high school trophy candidate or, you know, who makes a sports center top ten play because they need as much stuff to talk about, <laughs> to give people a reason to talk about the program as, you know, as humanly possible. That's just, it's just a fact. You know, they they don't get a lot of free press, you know, in terms of people just bringing them up in normal, natural conversation just because. 
So, like I said, Falk having a, you know, a season for the ages, sure as heck could help. Let's knock out Washington State, knock out Washington. Ride this puppy on home. So I'm not going to bury the lead. You know, Luke Falk, good, for those who are wondering. Uh, physically, you'd like him to be a little more Dudley. You know, I mean, that's just natural to want that. He he doesn't look like the ideal physical specimen. Game marks is probably not as fast as you would like, but he's likely to produce like nobody's darn business. Falk to marks is going to continue to be craziness. Um, Marcellus Pipkin, a DB, sort of acquitted himself pretty well. In the spring game, uh, Marks was 11 receptions, 96 yards, and a pair of touchdowns in the spring game. Falk went 23 or 28 for 170 yards in the spring game, which, you know, that's an actual for real football game for guys like Jacob Coker. Um, Nick Fagg and Gula Tapa are expected to give them a little more, uh, little more, I guess, just to give them more, to do more uh, in the defensive line, which is expected to take a step forward and needs to take a step forward for this team to be as good as it can be. Unsurprisingly, this team's secondary is uh, going to be a point of attention, contention, uh, maybe just plain old tension, depending on how things work out. But particularly if they don't get a great pass rush. So pass rush is going to be super important. If they can be a team that gets solid, consistent pass rush, uh, that helps them on any and all levels of the defense. I mean, that's one of those great great truisms in football that your your front half affects your back half more than your back half affects your front half. But despite that, the back half may be the strength uh, of the of the defense, or one of the strengths at least. So to keep on keeping on, making progress. Uh, this is a team that may need to blitz to get pressure, and that is obviously not quite ideal. But be that as it may, pressure must be had. If you can get it without blitzing, you'd prefer. If you can get it with blitzing, you'd, like I said, you do what you must. Uh, not being able to get to the quarterback is simply not an option. Uh, this is not a team, you know, that can sur- most teams can't survive not getting pressure on the quarterback. And especially a team that, you know, like I said, doesn't have super stud types really at any level of its defense. But you need to, if you're going to find that guy, maybe the guy that turns into a, a top 100 pick on defense, you would particularly like to have him being one of your pass rushers. So, though we don't talk about Washington State running backs very often for plenty of reasons, James Williams looks good all throughout the spring, and you know, redshirted 
coming off of a torn ACL, but looks good. Jared Wicks, Jamal Morrow, Keith Harrington, all are talented. Once again, you know, where you do with them, what you do with them. Um, in their particular offense, sure, that's a fair question. But they will get a chance to carry the ball. Sometimes the ball will be thrown to them. You know, they they, they use their running backs. They just don't run their running backs a huge mount, uh, which is a surprise to no one, I would assume. Other things to keep in mind, some of the young receivers have continued to grow and improve and work, which, once again, should not be a surprise to anyone. If you're a hardworking wide receiver, why wouldn't you go to Washington State if you had the opportunity to do so? River Craycraft had 10 catches for 174 yards. I will repeat that. That's not more than one game. That's not a full-on football game. That's a spring game in limited action. So watch out for River Craycraft, a member of my all appreciated team, to have an enormous, giant head slapper of a year. Robert Lewis, also impressed. Kyron Priester looked good. Uh, I mentioned Marks as well. T.J. Martin, four receptions for 61 yards. Isaiah Johnson, two receptions for 31 yards. Uh, Priester had four receptions for 40 yards. Then uh, Desmond Patton, uh, Patman and Grant Porter probably won't play a lot, but they're you know in the mix on the depth chart. And it sounds like maybe only one of them or maybe none of them might be redshirted. So that will be interesting to see, you know, one, how many wide receivers can get on the field. <laughs> um, obviously, there's certain limits to that. But even with, once again, you want to be able to deal with injury and whatever else might come up, a guy gets actively eligible, whatever. At wide receiver, they're pretty – they might be one of the deepest programs in all college football when it comes to receivers. They have at least two guys that I think have NFL futures and maybe more. Remains to be seen, as I said. The other things that we're so, you know, obviously we're sort of waiting to see is what happens with some of the others. So um, they're recruiting, you know, some big-time guys. Uh, They're hoping Isaiah Hodgins might be their next sort of superstar. He's a four-star recruit. He's got size. He's over six foot two. He's 191 pounds. He can run. And his father uh, played for Jim Mastro, the running back coach's dad, when he was in San Jose State. We'll see how much you know weight that holds. But um, Cyrus Habibi uh, Ikoyu, um, who else? Uh, Barry and Christian. I mean, they're in the mix for for you know, like I said, for Isaiah Hodgins, uh, Cyrus Habibi Ikoyu. Those are big time players. Um, Habibi Lukio is a little bit like oh, uh, T.J. Yeldon, maybe a little smaller, uh, but he's also looking at BYU, Iowa State, UNLV, and Wyoming. Because it's such a struggle to recruit, 
they need to be incredibly attentive, focused, and you know you can't miss. So in terms of this particular team, I think they'll find a way to get eligible. Uh, The question is how much beyond that can they get, right? How much more than that can they be? And that's, once again, there's another team that needs to stay just 100% healthy, right? Just... (laughs) <laughs> I mean, they can basically not afford any injuries anywhere. Uh, they don't bring back their best offensive linemen, not just of last season, but in a few years with Joe Dahl being gone. They'll need someone to emerge from amongst that offensive line group. And they'll probably run the football a little. I mean, <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> go crazy with it and say that they're going to be a clinical balanced attack, but don't be surprised if, you know, there's a couple of times when a guy gets double-digit rushing attempts, Woo-hoo! you know, which obviously doesn't sound like much, but when you factor in the, you know, the fact that we're talking about a, a Mike Leach team, you know, when you factor in that this is a team that has one of the best young passing quarterbacks in all of college football. And, you know, once again, refactoring Mike Leach in case he's about didn't factor him in quite enough the first time. Perhaps you you might be pleasantly surprised. I don't know how you feel about running the football. Surprised, whether pleasantly or not, with how many times they run the football, I guess is what I'm saying. I think six and six is completely reasonable. Seven and five certainly could happen. I don't think they could be relied upon or should be looked. I mean, if they won eight games, it should be. I mean, that that would be. First of all, it it would be incredibly satisfying for Coach Leach, who certainly had people circling around him at one point putting them on the dead coach walking list if they could somehow find eight wins. But, yeah, so just walking through what this team has and, like I said, equally as important what this team lacks. They should be at least competitive in the Pac-12 North. Uh, you know, Luke Falk, a, a walk-on, right? I mean, I love his story. I mean, kid from Utah's Logan High School, can't get a sniff from either BYU or Utah, or even Utah State, right? Utah State, right there in their backyard, no interest. Uh, just went nuts <laughs> last year as a sophomore. Passing over 4,566 yards and 38 touchdowns, 69.4 yards per completion. I mean, sorry, not true. Uh, completion percentage of 
fifth in the nation in total passing yards, fourth in passing touchdowns. And still he had to deal with a little bit of, of health concerns because he got knocked out three different games last year and missed the Apple Cup with a concussion. Peyton Bender is, you know, not bad, but he's clearly no loose fault. As I mentioned, they've got running backs all over the place. So, you know, maybe they'll have a couple of games where they'll only throw the ball 48 times and they actually run the football support. Uh, the defensive line must replace Destiny Vallejo and Daryl Paolo. Hercules Matafa gets a chance to start. Uh, he's certainly showed some talent. Robert Barber is a guy that has some skills and some talent. Uh, Daniel Ukulele goes from tackle to end. You know, I've talked about the receiver core, I think, enough. So, in terms of figuring out their possible wins and losses, always fun. I expect them to probably come out of the gate pretty strong, actually. Um, I think that once again, I mean, broken record time. This is a team that can ill afford any injuries ever to anyone. But the Eastern Michigan game is no Eastern Michigan, sorry, Eastern Washington game. The Eastern Michigan game, actually, ironically, Eastern Michigan, the FBS school, might be an easier game than Eastern Washington, the FCS school. But yes, the old Eastern Washington, a non gimme, a not a gimme game. And then they go to Boise, which is probably a loss, quite frankly. Then they take on Idaho, which is almost certainly a win. Idaho, at least for the moment, is still an FBS school, although clearly that is going to be changing. So, sitting probably at 2-1, and one, they get a week off, but it's really early and probably too early. I think coaches usually like to get that, that bye week, you know, the latter third or so, probably right on the, you know, two-thirds mark. But nevertheless, after that rest, they take on Oregon, at least Oregon's coming to them. I don't know if it'll make a difference. And they have to go to Stanford. Those are two losses. So I think they're a three-loss team at that point. I think they lose to UCLA. I think they lose there. I think they beat Oregon State. I think they lose to Arizona. I think they lose to Cal. I think they beat, they beat Washington and Colorado. Okay, getting the six points. Let's see if we can do it. They beat us in Washington, beat Idaho. Beat Arizona State? No. Beat Oregon State? That gets into three. Colorado gets into four. Washington? Hmm. Okay. Maybe five. Let <laughs> just double check. Hey, is it too late to try to slam Hawaii into your schedule real quick? Let's see. One. Two, three, four. So it's beat Arizona State, Colorado. Yeah, if they can beat Washington, they can get to six wins. And I think six wins is probably as good as it gets. I think five wins is very likely, actually. And four wins is far from impossible. This is a watershed. 
Uh, we saw this team kind of break through a little bit. And, I mean, I don't want to put it all on Luke Falk, but it's mostly on Luke Falk. If he can have some truly amazing, you know, record-setting kind of games against some of these better teams, some of these projected L's turn to W. It's just so hard, you know, to put so much on one player. But that's especially on offense, though they have a good running back. They have several good running backs, but they're likely to still be Washington State. And now we'll finish up with Chris Peterson's, at least for the night, with Chris Peterson's Sturdy Huskies. That I would say, frankly, by his standards, and I'm assuming also their own standards, has underachieved. So here's some of the questions that must be answered. One, mental and physical toughness. I mean, all those Boise State teams full of two stars and one stars with the occasional three star and one or two four stars, I think one five star in the history of the program. But essentially, this, you know, program as currently constituted, this current team, has not looked at times particularly mentally or physically tough, which was a hallmark of Peterson's teams previously. And I know he's not trying to recreate what he did at Boise with a big state school with a bunch of kids that wouldn't have ever gone to Boise, most of them at least, you know, under any circumstances. And some people, you know, ask, you know, could he make the magic happen at a bigger school with more money and more resources? And it's like, you know, yeah, let's give me a chance to fail with all that stuff, and I'll I'll have trouble turning that down as well. But yes, this team, how it's constructed and constituted, what it has to do. Well, John Ross is an explosive player, talented, can really do some things. Uh, the team is trying to get better at the explosive plays in terms of the, the long passing game. They've been practicing a lot of rugby tackles, um, which essentially is tapping the football to try to get more turnovers. Miles Gaskins is a terrific, you know, basically the larger version of my guy, Donald Pumphrey, uh, scaled up to, you know, the Pac-12 size. Tough little running back who runs you know, bigger than his body would make you think that he would. And, you know, like I said, I'm a big fan. And one of the coolest names in all of college football, uh, Psalm Wuchin. How about that for a name? But he's, a, he's also a pretty good player just in having a 
awesome name. Shabon leaders of the defense. Uh, Levon Coleman is another guy they expect anything about. I mentioned John Ross is very, very quick. Uh, Forrest, Donovan, and their brother. Guys, he would be the backup quarterback. Daniel Bridge Gad also looks good at various times. Uh, John Ross, of course, playing wide receiver is not something he's done a lot of in his past, but it might be something to be doing a lot of in his future. So we'll see how that how that develops, but he certainly has the, the talent that you look for. Nick Little looked good. Walk on John Rasmussen. There's another guy that has some talent, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if, despite being a, a walk-on, if he began to make some noise. But, yeah, they need... Need everything. Um, need everyone to once again another team that needs everyone to remain healthy. Another team that needs guys who were good last year to be better this year. Uh, yet another team that needs, frankly, fewer mistakes on both sides of the ball. Uh, for all of Jake Browning's talent, he he didn't always take care of the ball as carefully as he needed to or could. Some of the running backs, including my guy Gaskins, weren't always as ball secure as they could have been or should have been. I mean, there, there was, there's plenty of room for improvement. And Coach Peterson in the past has been one of the great improver of players I've ever seen. I mean, if you were to look at I mean, some of the players he's only had were good players. Some of them were very good players. But it's hard to think of a guy that, Stay with Coach Pearson really at the time. It didn't get better, I guess, is what I'm driving at. He seems to really, for lack of a better way putting, put it, get it. He seems to know what it is that helps players to improve. He needs to know how to, seems to know how to find them, find a way to get them to click on, and understand um, what their weaknesses are and how to turn those weaknesses into strengths, or at least not, weak, not stronger weaknesses, at least. And stop me if you heard this before. They need pass rush from someone. So amongst the people they're hoping will bring them said pass rush. Elijah Qualls has done a little bit of everything in his time at Washington. Uh, he's played some two-gap, sort of five-technique-type defensive end. Some people would like to see him sort of fill that Andrew Hudson kind of role. And he'll be mixed in with uh, Vita Valle, 
Greg Gaines, Joe Mathis, and Damian Turpin. As I mentioned, Jake Browning's deep ball. People have talked quite a bit about that. He doesn't have a huge arm, and that's not likely to ever change. But he has enough to get the ball there, and he's apparently improving in terms of deep ball accuracy and touch. Jeff Lindquist is being discussed as a possible H-back type. He's versatile enough probably to do a little bit of tight end, H-back, fullback kind of stuff. Uh, uh, Jamon Dotson, along with LeVon Kirkland, will be guys that will be there to spell uh, Miles Gaskin. Brandon Wellington and Sean McGrew are also in the mix, so further down the list. Uh, Isaiah Renfro, Raiden Linnaeus, the aforementioned John Ross, uh, Chico McClasher, and Richard Freshman and Andre uh, Baselia are all guys that people are expecting to see do some things amongst the receiving core. And last but not least, um, or not really the last, but close to, one of my favorite names in all of college football and a really interesting player, Saul Wuching, who everyone's oh, – he's played a lot of positions, obviously, which has slowed him at times. He's going to be strong side linebacker. He played buck in times in the past, but we're looking for big things from him, and I think he's going to be on my – despite being a senior, he's on my all-emerging team because I think he finally settles into one position and excels there this year. Tevis Bartlett is another guy they're hoping to get some things out of as well. And Corey Littleton is another guy that may see some uh, some play at the buck position. So, in terms of Washington's schedule and expectations. This is another one of those teams that needs to get off to a fast, or at least fast-ish start. At least in part because I think, I'm not saying they're fragile mentally, I think that would be an exaggeration. But I think they're a team that doesn't have a tremendous accretion of confidence as a team. I think they have individual players who are confident. I think they have a very confident coaching staff. I think they have a lot of, but collective confidence is where I, I think they might fall short. As a collection, I don't know how much belief they have in – I mean, they, I'm sure they say all the right things, but I wonder if when things start to turn away from them and things to go, you know, things to slip away, if this team doesn't sort of wonder if, you know, well, I guess we weren't supposed to win this one, as opposed to just digging deeper and fighting harder, which you always saw from those Peterson-Boise teams. Do they, to use an old military term, do they embrace the suck? Well, they open up by welcoming in Rutgers Scarlet Knights. We walking in off the uh, Jet Lag Express and 
be an early important game. Then they have two. One sort of a semi-FCS and another full-on FCS opponent in taking on Idaho and Portland State. And Portland State's a decent program, but not exactly a powerhouse. And, you know, Idaho is, you know, to be perfectly honest and not trying to be mean in any way, shape, or form, but it's undoubtedly one of the weaker, if not the weakest, SBS program in the country. So, you know, bottom five-ish almost every year. But that being said, you know, on any given Sunday, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, Idaho would love to win a football game, any football game, frankly, but especially, you know, against a team that's expected to, you know, push them around and smack them in the mouth and all that stuff that Washington, I'm sure, is assuming that they will do. And, frankly, they should do. But should they fail to do so for whatever reason? Should this be in one of those enormous, giant, oh, my God, upset wins for Idaho? Uh, that also would spell, when I talked about, you know, sort of a little bit of, I won't say fragility, but maybe not a, a full-on great sense of belief in, in itself as a team, that, I think, would cause this team to, like, crack wide open. Should they lose, you know, an unlosable game? That's exactly the kind of thing that, that a team like this might not bounce back from. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. I don't think they will lose that game. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, should they lose that game or even struggle in that game? I wonder a little bit how and if that might mean that there's a little bit of a, you know, a hangover, a little bit of a concern going forward, you know, if that ends up being, say, even a, you know, a nine-point victory, if they end up coming out of that game, you know, 23-14, might that start to rattle them a little bit. But I think they win it, and I think they win it, you know, by, by about three scores. You know, if somebody was willing to give me 20 points, I'd probably take it. Um, I'm not sure if I'd go to 21 or more, but that should be a victory. That's what all that was to say, that this is a, that's a game they should win and would have little to no excuse for losing. Was went a long way around, I guess, to say that. Uh, moving on from that game, assuming that they are indeed undefeated, which not at all crazy to assume that they would be, Things get interesting, more interesting, certainly soon after. So, assuming they stroll through the first two games unscathed, or skate, or whatever you want to say, um, then a 3-0 and Washington has their first really pivotal game of the season and then follow up with their second really pivotal game of the season back-to-back. They go two, Tucson to face theirs on the Wildcats, and then follow that up by having Stanford, the Cardinal, not Cardinals, people, it's the color, not the bird, but uh, having the Cardinal of Stanford come to visit them at Husky Stadium. Could they? Could they? 
somehow still be undefeated at this point, unlikely though it is, that would be enormous because, of course, the Ducks right after that. So we'll know exactly who they are, you know, by, you know, probably if it's a night game. I don't know if the Ducks game is a night game, but by late on the 8th or early morning on the 9th, depending on where you live, we will know just how good a team Washington is. Because they open with probably three easy victories, and then they go through. They could be three and three. They could be four and two, five and one. If somehow they're six and zero oh after that, then this is a great team. Or <laughs> this is a very good one. You have a little bit of rest. You get one week off, and then right back at it. It's probably a win at Oregon State. Probably a loss at Utah. Win at Cal, and actually the Oregon State comes to them, I should say. Then USC comes to them, which I think is a loss, so it could be a win, but I think it's a loss. I think they can beat Arizona State. I'm torn about that Arizona State game, but I'm going to go on and win. I think Washington wins it. I think they beat Washington State, though. That's a big game for both teams. So, this is a seven, maybe eight win team with a chance at 10. I don't, don't think they'll get to that. The schedule is somewhat favorable. I mean, you don't like going to Oregon or going to Tucson. And you especially don't like going to uh, Utah. But and the Washington State game is not, I mean, not that it's not a home field advantage, but it's not the world's hardest place to play. Sorry, Palmer. We've got, in my mind, a legitimate shot at seven. I think eight would be about the best they could expect. I think 9 and 10 would be kind of a pipe dream, but not impossible. And obviously, they win 11 games. That means they only lose to either Oregon or Stanford. Once again, possible, but not likely. I think they lose to both of the big sort of bullies of the North, to some extent, in Stanford and Oregon. Utah's a pivotal game. USC is a pivotal game, and obviously Arizona. Arizona's the first. That's such an important game. A win, once again, I talked about sort of a confidence thing. A win against Arizona means that they may feel really good about themselves with Stanford coming into town, and what if Stanford's not as good as we think they are? Then things get interesting. So that is the Pac-12 Part 1. Part two kicks off in the morning. Um, you should be joined by at least one, if not more than one special guest, still working on finalizing that. I believe Donovan will be joining us to knock out the California and Oregon schools. It'll be an interesting year in the Pac-12, as I mentioned before. A lot of new faces and some of the returning faces that maybe aren't new, will be different than they've been in the past. 
So, like I said, just keep an eye. I would keep an eye on this entire conference, quite frankly, but I think Arizona and Washington, the two schools we just discussed, are amongst the more pivotal schools. So I think the two Arizona schools and Washington are amongst the bigger swing teams in the conference where they could be really, really good or they could be terrible. So we will pick up again in the morning with the rest of the Pac-12. I thank you all for your time, your talent, and your attention. Have a great night. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.